This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast. Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we don't have an interview, it's just us. Woo! (laughs) Keeping it cozy. Yep, and we have a lot of news to talk about, so it'll still be nice and long. And our dinosaur of the day is Cetacosaurus. And we want to give an especially big thank you this week to our patrons at the $5 level. And that's Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Scotty, Jackson, and Tarmina. So jumping into the news, first, thanks to Guy for sending us this story on Patreon. There are researchers from the Burke Museum, also known as the Washington State Museum of Natural History and Culture. I prefer Burke Museum, it's a lot shorter. <laughs> that have found a new T-Rex skull while searching for fossils in the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. So first they found a vertebra sticking out of a hillside near some scattered pneumatized fossils, which means they're all porous and honeycomb looking, which made them think that they might have been from a tyrannosaur. They had to remove about 20 tons of rock from the hillside to get to the rest of the fossil after they discovered the vertebra sticking out, And it took over 45 people to excavate it so far. But they just discovered it back in May, so considering they already have a full skull encased in plaster, that's pretty impressive. In addition to the nearly complete skull with teeth, the researchers have also uncovered about a 20% complete T-Rex skeleton, including ribs, vertebrae, and hips, And this T-Rex skull is one of only about 15 relatively complete fossils yet discovered. So there's only about 15 good T-Rex skulls around, and they've got one of them. It's pretty cool. The skull is in a plaster jacket right now, and it's on display in the lobby of the Burke Museum. And it's going to stay there until October 2nd when they'll take off the plaster and start preparing the fossil. So if you want to see a big plaster blob that has a T-Rex skull in it, you can go to the Burke Museum. I think I would probably just wait until it's excavated. You make it sound so enticing. Yeah. They did say something like they had some tools around it that they used to excavate it, so it might be kind of interesting, and maybe there's somebody there kind of explaining it, but we've seen a lot of plaster-jacketed fossils, and they're really not that great. (laughs) But it's really exciting that they found a new T-Rex skull, so... It will be really cool in a few years for sure. 
Next up, the BBC wrote an article about Jane, a theropod found in 2003 in northwest Montana, which some scientists think is a juvenile T-Rex and others classify as Nanotyrannus, which is a smaller version of T-Rex, essentially. The skeleton found is nearly complete and is 20 feet or 6 meters long and 7 feet or 2 meters tall. In 1942, David Dunkel found a skull that looked similar to Jane's, but it wasn't clear what type of dinosaur it belonged to. Charles Gilmore classified it as Gorgosaurus, but in 1970, scientists thought it might be Albertosaurus. Then in 1988, Bob Bakker renamed it Nanotyrannus, which means pygmy tyrant. And in 1999, Thomas Carr found that Tyrannosaurus skulls became bigger over time as they grew, so then scientists thought that Nanotyrannus was just an immature Tyrannosaurus. And Russian paleontologist Anatoly Rozdesvensky had the same idea back in 1965, and he wrote, quote, Growth changes are therefore of the greatest importance in determining the scope and boundaries of a species, end quote. This kind of thinking has now become more popular, so in 2003, Gregory Erickson took a small slice of Jane's fibula to study her growth, and he estimated she was about 12 years old, and adult tyrannosaurs tend to reach maturity around age 20. In 2005, Erickson found that tyrannosaurs went through growth spurts that lasted about a decade, so he said Jane may have grown up to end up being a big T-Rex, though he's not completely sure whether she was a T-Rex or a nanotyrannus. There are other scientists, though, that are sure that Jane is a juvenile T-Rex, and we generally call these groups the lumpers and the splitters. Yep, and there's some pretty good evidence for both. I mean, we've seen some interesting things on leg proportions for splitting, but then you see other things where it looks like the nanotyrannus specimens were still growing. Yeah. So hard to say. Uh, maybe if we find enough specimens over time. Yep. Next, South Africa is having a dinosaur renaissance, according to Forbes. I really like that phrase, dinosaur renaissance. It's almost as good as golden age of dinosaurs. Almost. It makes me think of like Michelangelo carving a T-Rex out of marble or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so paleontologist Jonah Chouanier moved to South Africa from New York so he could find fossils. And he said people have been collecting dinosaurs there since the 1840s. And Sir Richard Owen described Massospondylus in the 1850s from there. People preferred to study mammals and their relatives in the early 20th century, which is interesting. And so many dinosaurs that were found were identified incorrectly as other animals then. And then in the 1970s, Walter Combs started re-describing dinosaurs, which got more people interested. So that's good. It's kind of funny that people would misidentify things as mammals because they're more interested in mammals. Because now you see people calling everything dinosaurs that aren't dinosaurs because people are more interested in dinosaurs. Like, I just saw a fake egg that might have been a turtle egg, <laughs> but they were naming it to some specific genus of dinosaur because that's what people wanted. <laughs> Interesting. They didn't just say dinosaur egg, they said a specific. Yeah, there's one that's supposed to be particularly large, so they were saying that it was that genus. Well, that's interesting. So in South Africa, things like apartheid and the political climate, heart progress, obviously. But then recently, the government started funding paleontology, which is part of why they're having this renaissance. So Jonah's department also recently got a CT scanner, and there should be a lot of studies and findings coming out of South Africa for a while. Yeah, as long as they're in the right kind of rock, because we did that story about the South African group that 
has had to take things to the European synchrotron because they've got these fragile fossils embedded with lots of minerals, so a regular CT scan can't cut it. Yeah, but they have the money to get it over to Europe. True. In another part of the world, Dryptosaurus is coming back to the New Jersey State Museum. So Research Casting International made the model, and it depicts Dryptosaurus in, well, two Dryptosauruses in the same pose as Charles Knight's 1897 painting, which was called The Leaping Laylips. We've discussed it before, how they're kind of synonyms, or also I think it depends on who you ask. But anyway, one Dryptosaurus is on its back, and the other is kind of leaping onto it hence the name. And the museum is in Trenton, and it's open Tuesday through Sundays and costs only $5 for adults. Yeah, we actually went to Trenton once, but the museum was closed, so we didn't see it. Oh, well, this wasn't there yet, but they had some other stuff we wanted to see. Not a lot of reasons to go to Trenton, generally. It's a little rough. They had a nice-looking Capitol building. They did, yeah. And they had some really good Hungarian food or something. Polish food. Polish food, yeah. (laughs) Next, the Virginia Museum of Natural History in Martinsville will be getting a full-cast skeleton of Stegosaurus, according to Martinsville Bulletin. And the Stegosaurus is 8 feet tall and 17 feet long, and it was first at the Smithsonian in 1917, and at the time was only the second full-size Stegosaurus on display in the world. So that's pretty cool. In 2003, people realized, though, that the original cast had a few mistakes, so it was recast so it could be more accurate, mostly in the way the tail and the posture looked. And this stegosaurus will go on display at the Dino Days Festival, which will take place in July 2017. This next story is pretty cool, comes from Popseye. Lightning struck in the Petrified Forest National Park, and this lightning bolt looked like a t-rex it was about to bite down on a rock formation and it's a pretty awesome picture so we'll share a link on our blog you can see for yourself it is really cool i thought it was fake at first just seeing the picture but popular science is a pretty good brand so it's probably real yeah and it was making its way around the internet too mm-hmm. next there's a man named randy Noel who may have the largest collection of dinosaur toys, according to the Smithsonian. He started collecting in the 1960s after getting a Fred Flintstone and Dino from his grandpa, (laughs) which is pretty funny because when you look at Dino, it doesn't even really look much like a dinosaur. Sure. I guess. It's got the tail. It does have a tail and the spots and the purple. (laughs) (laughs) The collar. Yeah. And although he hasn't counted them, he estimates he has a collection between five and 6,000 toys. Wow. Yeah. Where does he store them? So he's got tons of bins all over the place. And he said, quote, they're not supposed to be in the kitchen anymore. I used to have a diorama in the top of the kitchen, but periodically dinosaurs would fall on top of his wife while she was cooking and she didn't like that. <laughs> End quote. Don't blame her. Yeah. So I guess they're all over the house except for in the kitchen is the answer. (laughs) He's also said that he knows of a couple other collectors who had more dinosaur toys than him, but apparently they're all dead now, and he knows that because he saw their collection show up on eBay. (laughs) And he also said that he hopes when he dies, his collection won't show up on eBay, and his son said he would bury them with him, and his wife and his daughter said they would sell them on eBay. (laughs) So... I guess it just depends. <laughs> yep. Maybe some will go with him and 
some will go on eBay. Yeah, if he has 5,000, it could be kind of hard to bury them all with him. But <laughs> he uses his collection to teach children to make dinosaur dioramas through the Smithsonian Associates summer program. And he writes a column for the prehistoric times as well. And being scientifically minded, he seems a little disappointed in the scientific inaccuracies of most of the dinosaur toys. He says the toys started showing up in the 1950s, and most of them are direct copies from Rudolf Zallinger's mural from the Yale Peabody Museum. And you've probably seen little pieces of it. It's a huge mural. It's like 110 feet long and very tall. It's above where they keep all the fossils. There's lots of tail dragging going on, and the stegosaurus are those, like, semi-circle with really short legs and then the tail that just drags on the ground behind them. <laughs> and you see that all the time in toys. And he says there's kind of a vicious cycle of the kids buy these toys because they're in the children's books and then the children's books make their depictions based on what the kids like. And then even the scientifically accurate dinosaur toys are less popular because they don't look like the toys that are in the kids' books. Aww. So it just perpetuates... I think we just need more kids' books that look realistic. Yeah, we definitely do. So let us know if you have more dinosaur toys than him. I know a lot of you listeners have a lot of dinosaur toys. be pretty cool if you could beat his record. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Next, at Islands of Adventure, a theme park at Universal Orlando, there's this video of a service dog bravely attacking a velociraptor. I'm pretty sure it's a guy in a suit. At the raptor encounter, where visitors can learn about raptors and take a photo with one. And the headline is basically this dog bravely attacking this raptor. But I think the owner might have been goading the dog a little bit or telling the dog a little bit. But it's unclear. That's There's not, not really cool. any words, so it's hard to say. I hope the guy in the suit was okay getting attacked by a dog. Yeah, there's a big barrier between them. Oh, so it didn't actually bite onto him. It just like no, tried to get at him. No, it's just, it was mostly, it was startled by the raptor. It didn't really know what to make of it. It kind of backs off and then eventually goes back just for a little second. Hmm. But there's no words, so it's hard to say what happened. <laughs> well, I'm glad everybody's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't even know for sure if it's a guy in a raptor suit. It looks like it's based on how it's interacting, but you can't see too much. There's a lot of stuff in the front. I'm pretty sure the Universal Raptor encounters a guy in a suit. Okay. Next, our listener, Mark Sparky Evans, is competing to be one of the 20 finalists in a new show called The Perfect World Project, which is a reality show that will feature eventually just 10 people competing to win, quote-unquote, the perfect life. Sounds intriguing. Why share this? Well, in one of his videos, he assembles this awesome 3D Velociraptor. So we'll post a link on our blog if you want to vote for him. We already have. Good luck, Mark. Next up, we've talked about Island 359 before. It's a exclusive game for the HTC Vive, and it just came out on Steam Early Access, which is nice because they said it was going to come out in the summer, and it's still summer, so they made it. As we guessed, the game looks pretty much like you're trying to survive through something like a Jurassic Park movie, complete with pack-hunting dromaeosaurs, which they'll almost certainly call velociraptors, even though they're way bigger. From the trailer, it looks like you mostly just try to shoot the dinosaurs, and the tagline is, make them extinct again, hmm. which is kind of, eh. 
so I'm not too sad that I don't have a Vive to play the game on, but from a review on Tom's Hardware, it sounds kind of like a Resident Evil game in that you're constantly running out of ammo. So in those games, you kind of had to pick and choose who you're going to shoot and who you're going to run away from because you never had enough ammo. So maybe it's the same kind of thing in this game. So it might not be so massacre It's in early access right now, which means that it's still a little bit buggy and apparently there are a few issues still going on. But it's dinosaurs in VR. So if you have a Vive, you should probably play it. I think it's 20 bucks, so it's not too bad, especially considering a VR headset is way more than that. I'm still super excited for Saurian, especially with its VR capabilities, and hopefully they'll meet their target too when it'll come out in January. Yeah, they've been sending some pretty regular updates on their Kickstarter. Yeah, we're supposed to find out which bonus dinosaurs got picked from the voting. I'm still hoping for Ankylosaurus, but there are a lot of people voting for Anatotitan slash Edmontosaurus, which I guess would be cool, but it's no Ankylosaurus. Hmm. You know, you're a little biased. Yeah. Next, Wild Eye Releasing is coming out with a straight-to-DVD film on September 27th called Killersaurus. And this movie is about a weaponized T-Rex. Here's the official description in case you would like to check it out. When a scientist runs short of funding for his life-saving medical bioprinting research, he accepts an offer of investment from a shadowy military organization. In return, he is forced to use his technology to create the ultimate battlefield weapon, a full-size Tyrannosaurus Rex. After a horrific accident in which the dinosaur massacres his research team, the scientist shuts down the project. However, his investors demand results, and it can only be a matter of time before the deadly T-Rex is unleashed upon the world. Dun-dun-dun. That's pretty funny. Could be fun to watch. Yep, sounds like a good DVD film. (laughs) Yeah, straight to DVD. used to be straight to VHS, I guess. Nobody says straight to Blu-ray. Maybe it's not worth buying a Blu-ray of something like that. (laughs) Hmm. Did you say there was a book before where there were, like, dinosaurs in World War One or something like that combined? I don't remember. Because that would make a lot more sense to me. Because in modern times, even though a T-Rex is pretty ferocious, compared to, like, a, a modern tank, there's, I mean, there's... There's dinosaurs and cowboys. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But, like, I mean, in a modern war, a T-Rex isn't going to do anything. There's, with all these, like, explosives and everything, if you had it in, like, the Middle Ages or something, mm. that would be way cooler. I bet a T-Rex today would still do damage. It would do damage in, like, a civilian population, but, like, on a battlefield, it's not going to do anything. They don't have, like, bulletproof skin. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and they're not that fast. Any modern vehicle is going to outdrive them, including modern tanks. It still would take multiple bullets to take it down. Yeah, it would. But I don't think it's the ultimate battlefield weapon. I think a M1 Abrams tank is quite a bit more severe. Mm, could be. Although I guess we'll see when Jurassic World 2 comes out, because apparently there might be some more military action there. That's a little bit different. Because they're genetically engineered to be bulletproof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. There's more dinosaurs in the media. So there's a play called Captain Flynn and the Pirate Dinosaurs 2, The Magic Cutlass, which is the sequel to an award-winning play called Captain Flynn and the Pirate Dinosaurs, and it's going on tour in the UK. It's based on the book by Giles Andrea and Russell 
Aito. And in the play, the sequel play, characters Flynn, Pearl, and Tom are in the middle of their school play when Mr. T, the T-Rex, kidnaps them and makes them look for the magic cutlass, which, whoever has it, it will grant any wish. And they end up on a pirate adventure that involves dinosaurs and an exploding sausage machine. <laughs> which, I'm intrigued how you would do that on a play format. Yeah, maybe they tried to put the T-Rex into the sausage machine and that's why it exploded. Maybe. Trying to make T-Rex sausage. Maybe. It's unclear without seeing it. Yeah. If it does well in the UK, maybe it'll go on tour in the US. Maybe. Although I hadn't heard of the first play, so I don't know. Yeah, that does not bode well. Sounds fun, though. Yeah. Thanks to Patrick via Facebook for this one. This is really exciting news, at least to me. According to Deadline, National Geographic Channel just closed a script development deal for a limited TV series of Michael Crichton's Dragon Teeth, which we mentioned in a previous episode. This is a manuscript that his wife found, and it's going to be published in April of next year. So we will get to see his account of the Bone Wars brought to life. Yeah, that's cool. We've seen a couple of documentaries about the Bone Wars, but... There's so much to the story, it'll be interesting to see what his take on it was. Yeah. This isn't the first time they tried to make a TV series, or maybe it was a movie. There was going to be something with Steve Carell and James Gandolfini. They were going to play Marsh and Cope. I forget which one was which, but Hmm. then James Gandolfini passed away, so they didn't go through with the project. That would have been a fun one, though. (laughs) Yeah. Our last piece of news is only vaguely dinosaur-related, but we've been watching Hard Knocks, an HBO series that follows a football team in each offseason, and this year they're with the L.A. Rams. So William Hayes, a starting defensive end from North Carolina, declared that he doesn't believe in dinosaurs on the show. And he said in an interview with ESPN, quote, "...with these bones, it's crazy because man has never seen a dinosaur." We can agree on that, right? But we know exactly how to put these bones together. (laughs) End quote. Like, just because it's a puzzle means it can never be solved. It's very emphatic, too. Yes. And he, like, starts yelling at people that they're ignorant for believing it and all this kind of stuff. So it's pretty funny because when his teammates asked him how paleontologists found bones, he said that he thinks they buried them and then dug them back up as an elaborate hoax, which actually did kind of happen one time with an hominid discovery with this one guy. But on the scale of dinosaurs, it would just be totally crazy. I actually didn't really mind his statements that much because all the other players that they showed clearly believed in dinosaurs and tried to explain to him how they were real and how it would be too... They filled his locker with dinosaur toys. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a pretty funny plot point. But the best part was that they showed a quick interview with the head coach, Jeff Fisher, who explained that Hayes was really excited to move to L.A. from St. Louis because he thought he might get a chance to see a mermaid. Hmm. And he explains how, like, we discover new things in the ocean all the time. So there could be mermaids in there. Just imagine there are probably mermaids. And meanwhile, he has zero understanding of how things go extinct. (laughs) So it's not really anything new. I think the editors of Hard Knocks have a lot of fun trying to make the players look as dumb as possible. For instance, it might have been the same episode or maybe one before. They spent 
quite a bit of the episode showing how different players didn't know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And then last season, they showed most of the players on the Texans failing to spell spaghetti with all sorts of interesting versions of how to spell it. Yeah. So not believing in dinosaurs in that context isn't really that surprising. It's not the first time he's been quoted as saying that, though. That's true. I made some news last year saying the same thing. Yeah, and there were people even expecting as soon as they knew that this team was going to be the Hard Knocks subject that they would probably goad it out of him because they like to highlight this kind of stuff. But yeah, I was actually kind of happy that it wasn't seen as like a legitimate point of view. It was like, oh, this guy's just crazy. Hmm. So Let him have his fun. Yeah. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Cetacosaurus, which was a request from Steph via Twitter. So thanks, Steph. And the name means parrot lizard. It was a ceratopsian that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Asia. So it's been found in Mongolia, Siberia, China, maybe Thailand. And it's the earliest known ceratopsian. It was first discovered in 1922 during the American Museum of Natural History's third expedition to the Gobi Desert. And they found a nearly complete skull. And it was first described in 1923 by Henry Fairfield Osborne. 
It's the type genus of the family Cetacosauridae, which Osborne named also in 1923. And it's one of the most well-known dinosaurs, with more than 400 individuals found and lots of complete skeletons in a wide variety of ages. 17 species have been named Cetacosaurus, but only between 9 and 11 are considered valid, and that's the highest number of valid species assigned to a non-avian dinosaur genus. Yeah, that's a lot, especially since more than half of dinosaur genus just have one species. Yeah. So the type species is Cetacosaurus mongoliensis, and the type specimen is of a juvenile. Different species have different skull shapes in terms of length, height, roundness, and what they call bony lumps. <laughs> and species include Mongoliensis, Lugiatunensis, Nemongoliensis, Shinjiansensis, Sinensis, Melaniensis, Ordosensis, and Sibricus. You passed the tongue twister. Yeah. And that's only eight of them. Osborne also named another specimen Protiguanodon mongoliensis, thinking it was an ancestor of Iguanodon, but it turned out to not be different enough from Cetacosaurus. Osborne said that it had different teeth and snout features, but that wasn't enough. And then in 1958, Yang Zhongjian, a Chinese paleontologist, renamed it to Cetacosaurus Protiguanodensis, though nowadays it's usually considered to be Cetacosaurus mongoliensis, and Protiguanodon and Cetacosaurus protiguanodensis are considered to be junior synonyms of Cetacosaurus mongoliensis. Oof. Yeah. C.C. Young named a new species Cetacosaurus osborni in 1931 after Henry Osborne. It was a partial skull found in Inner Mongolia. Some people, though, think it's a synonym for Cetacosaurus mongoliensis, and others think it's valid. Cetacosaurus sibiricus had some what they call bony horns. So they didn't have the same kind of horns as later Ceratopsians, but they had things that kind of grew out of their cheeks. But some people think that that's convergent evolution. Cetacosaurus mongoliensis skulls are flat on top. I'm just going through some of the differences between the species. Uh, Cetacosaurus sinensis have smaller skulls than other Cetacosaurus species and fewer teeth than Cetacosaurus mongoliensis. Also, the species sinensis cheekbones flare out sideways that look like horns, and the skull is wider than it is long. It also has a smaller, quote-unquote, horn behind the eye, which you also see in Cetacosaurus sibiricus. Cetacosaurus shinjiansis has a cheek horn that's flattened on the front end. Cetacosaurus Melangensis has the shortest snout and shortest neck frill and a very round skull. Cetacosaurus nemongoliensis has a narrow skull compared to other species and is the smallest known species. And Cetacosaurus lugiatinensis is well known from a study of three specimens in 2007. It had an advanced brain and may have had behavior as complex as Tyrannosaurus, so they may have built nests, cared for their young, and also slept like birds. Cetacosaurus in general, did not have much ornamentation, meaning not really elaborate horns or neck frills. Not like Styracosaurus. <laughs> exactly. But they did, at least some of them, had these bony lumps that grew from their skulls. They had four digits on the hand instead of five, like other Ornithischians and Ceratopsians. And they had four toes, similar to small Ornithischians. They grew up to 6.5 feet, or 2 meters long, and weighed up to 44 pounds, or 20 kilograms. Pretty small. Yeah. Well, they're early. It's almost like dog size. <laughs> their body has scales that were large and small in irregular patterns. 
And in 2008, a study of two different Cetacosaurus individuals found that its skin was thick, about 40 layers, and may have helped protect it against predators. In 2010, Ford and Martin said Cetacosaurus may have been semi-aquatic, swimming with its tail like a crocodile. And this is based on specimens being found near lakes and them having long chevrons in the tails. They also had bristles on the tail that may have helped form a fin, as well as the position of their nostrils and eyes. Yeah, could be. Well, depends who you ask. Yeah, <laughs> there is a little bit of that bias on where you find fossils anyway, because you're more likely to find them by water. So that probably shouldn't count as evidence for them being semi-aquatic. But yeah, well, it does make sense that if you have a good tail for swimming, you might be swimming. Yeah, and if you found a lot of them. So Cetacosaurus had a proportionately large brain and, again, probably complex behaviors. It had a good sense of smell and vision and may have been cathemeral. There's no direct evidence that they cared for their young, but it may have happened. As a juvenile, they were quadrupedal, but then between ages four and six, their legs grew a lot and they became bipedal. And they couldn't rotate or reach the ground with their forearms. I didn't know they became bipedal. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. In 2007, Phil Center did a study of Cetacosaurus ne mongoliensis and Cetacosaurus mongoliensis and found its forelimbs were too short to reach the ground. They were 55% as long as the hind limbs, so that made them bipedal. And that also meant that they were too short to dig and bring food to their mouth, which I imagine would be frustrating. <laughs> they had parrot-like beaks and cheek teeth to eat fibrous vegetation, and they had generally tall skulls that were short in length and in some cases almost round. They were probably a selective browser and again they had a beak and it was probably covered in keratin and they had self-sharpening teeth to crop and slice vegetation. They couldn't grind or chew their food so they used gastroliths. Probably. Their upper and lower jaws on the skull worked like a single unit without internal joints. It's called akinetic skulls. And they had only one joint in the jaw joint, so it could slide its lower jaws forward and backwards to shear its food. Juvenile Cetacosaurus has not been found with gastrolyphs, so it's possible that its diet changed with age and they just ate less fibrous food at first. Cetacosaurus gobiensis was found to have lots of gastrolyphs in its gut, so it may have used its beak to crack nuts and seeds and then use the stones to help digest. Cetacosaurus was a prey animal, one juvenile Cetacosaurus remains have been found in a carnivorous mammal, which is interesting. That's the first example that we know of, of a mammal that ate a dinosaur. Yeah. Score one for the mammals. I think we won in the end. Yeah. <laughs> there was a hundred plus million years there that were a little rough. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. A herd of six Cetacosauruses were found buried by a volcanic mud flow, and that shows that they possibly lived in groups. This herd was of different ages. The young ones had worn teeth, which means that they chewed their own food. And this group probably lived together for protection or to help with finding food or possibly the older ones helped with the nest. In 2004, 34 juvenile Cetacosaurus skeletons and the skull of an adult were found in the Yixian formation. All the juveniles are under the adult, which may mean the adult was caring for the young, but that seems like a lot of dinosaurs to care for. In 2013, it was pointed out that the adult actually didn't belong with the nest and had been glued onto it. The adult skull was actually of a six-year-old too, and they wouldn't reach maturity until age 10. And again, it's unlikely that one adult would have had so many juveniles to care for at once. Yeah. 
In 2014, a study of the six-year-old skull found with these juvenile skeletons, they decided that there may have been post-hatching cooperation so that it may have been taking care of the babies. Maybe not necessarily with this particular six-year-old skull, but it could have been in general. There's some modern birds that do this. Hatchlings have been discovered of Cetacosaurus, including one at the American Museum of Natural History that's 4 to 5 inches or 11 to 13 centimeters long, and another one at AMNH that's 1.8 inches or 4.6 centimeters long. And they're both of Cetacosaurus mongoliensis and from Mongolia. I think we have a picture of that one with the magnifying glass over it. Mm -hmm. I like that little guy. It's very cute. Cetacosaurus had quill-like feathers on the tail. One was found with long filaments on its tail. And they're bristle-like structures. And they were found on the tail of a Cetacosaurus that was found in China, probably the Yixian Formation, and it was found in 2002. The quill-like feathers may have been used for display. The Cetacosaurus, where they found the quill-like feathers, isn't assigned to a particular species. It was illegally taken from China and purchased by a German museum and then described while awaiting repatriation. What happened is they had the same fluorescence as scales in ultraviolet light, so they may have been keratinized. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Once Cetacosaurus has been found with a pathology, it's of a Cetacosaurus mongoliensis found in the Yixian Formation, and it had an infection near the mid part of the right fibula. It has a large round pit from lack of blood supply and a large swelling along the lower part of the bone. It's unclear how this happened, though. Jeez. Mm -hmm. It's a little rough. So as I said earlier, Cetacosaurus is an early ceratopsian, and ceratopsia is a group of herbivorous dinosaurs that lived in North America and Asia in the Cretaceous. They had parrot-like beaks and cheek teeth to eat fibrous vegetation, and they were ornithischians. They also had frills that were used for defense or regulating body temperature, attracting mates, or signaling danger. And they probably traveled in herds and could then stampede if threatened. Although these guys probably couldn't do much stampeding if they only weighed 44 pounds. That's true. <laughs> Unless they were being threatened by little mammals that were trying to eat them. <laughs> well, yeah, there were mammals to worry about. And our fun fact of the day is about eggs again. It's been a while since I had an egg fun fact, but they always send me down really deep rabbit holes. I was looking at some different eggs to try to compare what kind of a meal you would get out of a dinosaur egg. And so starting with the USDA large egg, a chicken egg specifically, they average about two ounces or 57 grams, and they have about 90 calories, six grams of fat, and seven grams of protein. Most of the fat's in the egg yolk, so sometimes you remove that and you get a pretty good protein ratio there for your calories, which is why they're so popular. An ostrich egg is typically about three pounds or 1.4 kilograms, and it's equivalent to about two dozen eggs gives you about 2,000 calories, 150 grams of fat, and 170 grams of protein. Wow. Yeah. Eating an ostrich egg is pretty difficult to do by yourself. Usually it's for like a whole large family or something like that. But the largest dinosaur egg that I could find is an oviraptorosaur from China, and it's about 400 times the size of a chicken egg. And assuming the same ratio of calories, fat, and protein, because ostriches and chickens are almost exactly the same ratio, 
you'd have 36,000 calories, 2,400 grams of fat, and 2,800 grams of protein. What is that? Like six pounds of protein or something. In That's this. a lot of food. It is. It's an insane amount of food. So to put it another way, ostriches lay about 50 eggs a year, which is equivalent to about 1,200 chicken eggs. But if you had one of these oviraptorosaurs on your farm, you would only need three of them in a year to be equivalent to getting two dozen chicken eggs a week for a whole year. <laughs> Those are some big eggs. And I was wondering, too, how you would cook the thing because you Scramble. can... Scramble. Yeah. I think that's the only way. You'd probably have to. You might be able to hard boil it, but... How would you eat it? You'd cut it up and then <laughs> you couldn't eat it. It wouldn't be like a single serving chicken egg. Well, an uh, ostrich egg apparently takes an hour and a half because it's so much thicker and, you know, you have to get all the way to the middle of the egg. So it might take like a day to hard boil one of these dinosaur eggs. So anyway, if you get one of these big dinosaurs, you'd sure get a good meal out of it. Fred Flintstone did. <laughs> I guess so. I never really watched the Flintstones. Actually, he liked the brontosaurus ribs the best. Oh, I think one rib would be like one of these eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. We've also started making some short videos on YouTube. It's about five new ones, four of them about our epic dinosaur road trip in Alberta and Montana, and a time-lapse video of some 3D dinosaur cookies we made recently. And we have some ideas for some future videos. Yeah, Sabrina did a really good job with them. Thank you. So yeah, we have a lot of great stuff going on. And also, we'd really appreciate some reviews. If you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be awesome. Until next time. Good day.